Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad to be with you today. Thank you so much for taking your time to uh, spend it with me right now. I'm very excited about the next couple of hours. I think it'll be great. And also today is uh, Veterans Day, which I say we celebrate veterans every day of the year. But today is uh, November 11th, so it's the anniversary of the signing of the armistice, which ended World War I hostilities between the Allied Nations and Germany in 1918. So we're celebrating the veterans, and we uh, just want to honor and thank all military personnel who served in the United States in all wars, especially, the, of course, the living veterans. So if you're listening today and you're a veteran, uh, God bless you and your family and your service to the country. Thank you so much for your bravery, your courage, the way you set an example, the way you were bold and brave, um, men and women that decided to take up and go uh, be part of the armed forces of the United States of America. We're proud of you. We care about you and we love you. So thank you so much. All right. I want to get today started with uh, our, first of all, I want to go to a passage in scripture, which I've been looking at the last couple of days in first John chapter two, my Bible study has been studying this. So it's been uh, kind of on my mind. First John two, 15 and 16 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Great reminder. David Wheaton is my friend, and uh, he is a host of The Christian Worldview. You can go to the uh, thechristianworldview.org. We have been in a series on uh, Genesis now for months and months and how the book of Genesis is so relevant for today. I want to say we're up around the chapter 30, 31 range, maybe. I think that sounds about right, but I'm going to check in with David. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be with you today, Bill. Does that sound about right? Are we around uh, yeah, we're, chapter 30 exactly or so? You're exactly right. We're in Genesis 30 and 31, and and as we've been going through this, every every week that we, we have this interview, I you know obviously look into the chapter and try to pull a few points out of it, and three, three, three things really strike me. Number one, Hollywood could never, the best writers in Hollywood could never <laughs> come up with the scripts mm. that you read in Genesis. As a matter of fact, that's why Hollywood uses uh, biblical stories like the Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur and uses stories from Scripture uh, to make feature, you know, award-winning films out of. Right. And uh, the second thing is, Bill, that the way we're going through it, you know, a couple chapters per interview, there's a, we're just giving it the the, the thirty thousand, you know, flyover view of it. When you dig into these things, there's so much more to be pulled out. So I would just encourage your your listeners to to read Genesis. It's unbelievably relevant. You read it, you read it slowly, think about it, pray over it, and you're just going to see how there's so many things in there. Just the way God deals with us and the way human nature is. It's the same back then as it is now. Um, you'll, you'll just see that written over every chapter of Genesis. And then finally, what you see, and this is what we'll talk about today, is that how God's sovereignty, His rule, His purposes, His providence, His plans, 
they still keep moving forward in the midst of just our fallen and sinful circumstances of life. He, he somehow moves the ball forward according to his purposes, even in the midst of very sinful circumstances. Yeah, I don't want to get too far off the path, though, David, but you brought up Hollywood, and I thought, well, every story out of Hollywood is basically comes from the Bible. I mean, there's a hero uh, and a villain. There is someone uh, in need of love, someone in need of being cared for. I mean, this is all right out of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And you would know that better than most, Bill, having written uh, stage dramas and other things and rises and falls and protagonists and antagonists. Yeah. And it, it's true. So much is pulled from Scripture. That's why if you're just going to read one book, make it the Bible. Yeah. And Genesis is a powerful book. And you're doing a fantastic job of really bringing this uh, relevant for today. So maybe well, we can go uh, from where we left off last time, which I think uh, just for a little bit of a recap, because I love recaps before we get started. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can talk about some of the key points from the last time uh, we talked. I think we were chatting about Genesis 28 and 29. That's right. It was 28 and 29. And basically the headline from those two chapters was, uh, you know, you have Jacob and Esau, the twins, and there was the the incredible story about how God had uh, told uh, Jacob and Esau's parents, which are Isaac and um, and Rebecca, that they were going to have, uh, you know, they're going to have, they were barren and they couldn't have children. But then all of a sudden they had twins, and 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 the older Esau was going to serve the younger, and, and then the story of how that works out, where where the younger Jacob sort of barters for Esau's birthright, and then Isaac tries to bless Esau instead of Jacob in disobedience to God, but. But uh, Rebecca and Jacob come up with this incredible plan to deceive Isaac, and it all didn't need to be done. And it ended up really the way God wanted it to be done. Again, of course, the, the younger would be over the, the older. Jacob would be the one that was through whom the blessing would come uh, for the nation of Israel. But getting there was a very, very messy road, and it led to a fracture in the family. And Esau was so turned off by this whole thing that he realized he got his birthright stolen— he got the blessing stolen uh, by Jacob that he was going to murder his brother. And at that point, uh, you see his parents, Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebecca, saying, you need to leave before you get murdered, but you also need to leave to find a wife. So they send him back uh, to the land uh, where this family came from. Abraham was the first one to came, come down. He was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. But they came from a, an area north, I think called Mesopotamia. It was a, like several hundred miles away from— from where they were in the promised land. They had been promised this land, but they kept on going back to find wives from their homeland because the the, the women in the area, the, the culture in the area was so godless. And that's been actually one of our big points in the last several chapters is how important it is to marry, quote, in the Lord, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, because if you have a a, a, di- a division in in a, in a marriage, if you, as the Bible says, unequally yoked, like take a ox and a donkey and try to put them under the same yoke, it just doesn't work very well. And so this is something that a story we've seen. We see it now with the story of Jacob. They send him away from Canaan, the Promised Land, back to the homeland, and there, just like his father, he gets he finds a wife. And uh, but he doesn't end up uh, thinking he's going to be there for 20 years, which is the story we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And David, you, we've been chatting about God's sovereignty quite a bit lately in the last couple of weeks, and it's interesting because it, you, we look at these fallen and very sinful circumstances, mm-hmm. and yet God's sovereignty and His promises are still moving full steam ahead, aren't they? Yeah, they are, and I think that that concept, God's sovereignty, is a 
is a misunderstood term and, and actually a rejected term by even many Christians. And, and, and the word sovereign has that word reign in it. So it's that God is king. He reigns over the affairs of life, whether we think it, whether we believe it, whether we deny it. He reigns. The uh, Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He reigns. Uh, he is the Lord. He is the king. And so this, this idea of sovereignty, I think sometimes uh, we as humans tend to think it takes away from our individual personal responsibility, but that's not the case. Uh, like in the case of salvation, God is sovereign in, in salvation. He, he does choose. He does elect, the Bible says, those who will be saved. Yet at the same time, the Bible also teaches that we have responsibility to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, can I explain that to you, Bill? I can't. But those two truths are perfectly relatable and understandable in the mind of God, but maybe not in our own minds, but we're to believe both of them. There are two parallel truths on, on the same train track going in the same direction. And so this issue of God's sovereignty, how he works out, how he controls the affairs of life, he causes or allows everything that happens to happen is something that we need to embrace because he is king of the universe. Yeah, awesome. Okay, David, let's uh, let's move ahead into, say, chapter 30. So how would we, uh, how do we come to understand how Jacob's sons would set up the future of Israel? Well, probably most everyone listening has heard about the 12 tribes of, of Israel, but th- this is where they were formed, right here with Jacob's son. So Jacob's gone into this area, his ancestral homeland. He runs into uh, a a young woman named Rachel, uh, who is the daughter of his uncle named Laban. And and she brings him back to Laban's, her father's house. And uh, Laban realizes right away, this is this is a a relative of mine from a long, long way away. And uh, he begins to have a deal like, well, if you work for me for seven years, I'll give you my daughter, Rachel. Well, uh, Jacob gladly does this. He works for seven years uh, for Rachel. And then and then the deceiver, Jacob, that's what his name means, supplanter, gets deceived by Laban. And that, and then on the marriage night, uh, lo and behold, uh, Laban's other daughter, Leah, is veiled. And so he ends up marrying Leah, the older daughter, without even knowing it. And he finds out the next day, and he's all upset. And Laban says, well, it's not our cultural practice to marry the younger daughter before the older daughter works seven more years, and I'll give you Rachel. Well, he doesn't work seven more years. He waits a week and marries Rachel, but then works another seven years. So 14 years he's worked. And what a great deal, quote, deal for <laughs> Laban, because he's getting you know free labor out mm-hmm. of this. And yet, and Jacob's also thrilled as well. And now he's got two wives, which is never God's intention. And that's the problem. Now there begins to be a, a sister competition between Leah, the older daughter, and, and Rachel, the younger daughter, both married to Jacob, about who's going to have children. And Rachel is, is barren. Once again, barrenness is used by God to, to, to do so many, accomplish so much of his purposes. And Leah starts having children. And this is where all the 12 tribes come. And when, 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 when either of the wives, the sisters, aren't having children for Jacob, they start, they start resorting to the same old um, unwise practice of giving their, their maids to, to Jacob to be wives as well. So Jacob ends up with four wives, not a good thing. There's competition between the sisters. There's polygamy. There's covetousness going on, pride, mm. all these things. And yet in the midst of it, God is is seeing seeing out that there's going to be these 12 tribes of Israel through the 12 sons 
of Jacob that are being bored to Leah, Rachel, and the two maids. Wow. All right, we're going to take a little break. David Wheaton's my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, of course. He's an author, speaker, radio host, and all-around awesome guy, not to mention former professional tennis player, but I think you all know that. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. We're back. 18 minutes after the hour, we are with David Wheaton. We're chatting about Genesis, which we've been doing for months, which I've been loving. And we are in chapter 30 of Genesis, if you've got your Bibles open. All right. So, David, let's uh, pick it back up in chapter 30. So let's, uh, I want to ask you, how did God's promise for land and seed and blessing continue to be fulfilled in Jacob? Right. That was the big covenant that God made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. You know, of you, I'm going to make a great nation. There's going to be land, seed, and land descendants in in blessing. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Those are the three big tenets of it, and God promised that to Abraham, you know, back in, what was it, Genesis 12 or 15, or Mm -hmm. many chapters ago. And then we see how that covenant promise keeps on getting reiterated by God, not only to Abraham, but then to Abraham's son Isaac, and then to to Isaac's son now Jacob. And and we see that taking place even when Jacob is outside the the promised land of Canaan. Now he's away from home. He's gone to find a wife. Well, he's got more than he bargained for. Now he has four wives. He has he has 11 sons, and there's also daughters as well. And you, and you can piece it together who the sons are, but I'm just going to read over a few of them because people will recognize who they are and the significance of who these sons of Jacob uh, would become. You know, Leah had six sons. So Jacob has six sons with Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, from whom the Levites come, those who would serve in the, the tabernacle and then the tent, uh, the, the temple in the future. Judah was another son from which the line of Jesus Christ would come, mm. Issachar and Zebulun. So there's a six sons of, of Leah, his, fir- his first wife. And then he also had uh, two other sons from uh, Leah's maid, Zilpah, and they were named Gad and Asher. And then he had uh, two other sons from Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. They're, they were also significant in the future when Israel came back into the land after the exodus from Israel. And then Rachel— uh, the, the woman that he really wanted to marry first, uh, she was barren for a long time. It finally bore him Joseph. And as we're going to get into in the coming months on this program, Joseph is going to figure so prominently oh, yeah. in the story and how they actually, the family leaves uh, land of Canaan to go to Egypt because of the famine. They go down there and Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers. I mean, just unbelievable because they're so jealous of him, they're envious of him, and Joseph goes into Egypt as a, as a slave and literally becomes second in command to Pharaoh and ends up saving his own family from the famine back in Israel. So we're going to get to that, but anyway, th- this, this is significant, these 11 sons. There's going to be 12. Benjamin's not born yet to Rachel, but she, he will be born coming up in the story. So these are really significant, uh, what's taking place here in in the growing family. So you thought you asked about this covenant of of uh, land, seed, and blessing. Well, mm-hmm. he's not back in the land yet. Okay, the land's still promised, but from a standpoint of descendants, now he's having you know eleven sons and daughters. His family 
is really blessed. He's he's getting huge. And also just the blessing part of this, this covenant promise is happening as well. Uh, Jacob is, is causing the fact that Jacob is working for his uncle Laban. God is blessing Laban through Jacob. In other words, the flocks, see, he's working as a, as a shepherd for Laban. The flocks of Laban are just growing. He, he's He's just becoming rich, and this is how this was the currency back then. How much livestock did did you own? Land did you command? And Laban is getting wealthier and wealthier because of God's blessing on uh, on Jacob. And so this Abrahamic covenant is playing out, even though they're not in the promised land. It's still playing out in other ways and setting Jacob up to actually leave the house of Laban and return to the promised land coming up. So, David, there was a little bit of uh, backlash, wasn't there? Some resentment uh, by Laban, to say the least. Yeah, it, it, isn't that the case? <laughs> yeah, you know, always the uh, case. You know, Laban recognized the uncle recognized uh, he he after fourteen years of being there. Now he served his time, so to speak, for his two wives, the sisters Leah and Rachel. Now he wants to go back to the promised land. And by the way, he wanted to go back because he wanted to honor God. He, he, you know, God had told them, you're not going to Haran to live there for good. You're going to go there and get a wife and come home. Well, he didn't know it'd be 14 years later before he'd start coming back. And so Laban recognized, though, after those 14 years when, when Jacob wanted to go, Jacob basically wanted, I want to have my own career now. I want to stop working for you and making you rich. I want to, you know, make my own, my own, my own way in life. Well, Laban doesn't want him to go. Well, why? Well, of course, why? Because Laban is getting rich based on the blessing of God on, on Jacob's life. And so he ends up staying uh, for another six years. They work out this deal, and I'll let listeners read it on their own. It's a pretty unbelievable deal where Jacob says, okay, I'll stay, but I want to start getting a piece of the action. I will just take any of the sheep that we raise, any of the ones that are speckled or spotted, in other words, don't have a perfectly white coat, and Laban thinks this is a great deal because Jacob's taking the lesser valued uh, of the sheep. Well, again, the blessing of God, the Abrahamic covenant, which sheep do you think are going to multiply way beyond the other? Of course, the speckled, the speckled and striped ones do. Mm-hmm. And in time, Jacob becomes much more rich and much more powerful than his uncle. And then that's your question about the resentment. And so Jacob is nervous now because Laban's sons are, are, are resentful and envious of Jacob, how much wealth he's gotten. They think that he's stolen uh, the wealth that, his, that their father should have had. And Jacob decides to kind of flee. After 20 years now, he worked another six years and he built so much wealth, he decides it's safer for him to not say goodbye to Laban, but just literally make a run for it. And that's what takes place in Genesis 31. He makes a run for it, but Laban ends up not allowing this to happen and chasing him back to the promised land. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, interesting uh, with the the um, the wealth that came uh, into Jacob's uh, with the striped and the speckled. Uh, that was an interesting yeah. bet. That. I, yeah, I mean, I, and, and and how he did it, by the way, is interesting too. There are these yeah. like mandrakes. These he had this breeding program <laughs> that he had learned shepherd for so many years that would cause the sheep to want to breed more frequently and how to develop stronger sheep. I mean, mm-hmm. this is back in the days before you had the University of Minnesota, you know, uh, agricultural building right. that where they would tell you how to do these things. Um, this was, he had learned this, how, to, how to, to do this. But again, even beyond that, it was God's blessing on his life. And it, but the resentment part of it is so typical of something we see today. 
uh, if you're someone who's who God is blessed and maybe in your career or in some way, you know, it's just human nature for other people to, to begin to resent you or the other way around. If you see someone else doing well, don't resent them. Be happy for them. And that wasn't the case in, in the family with Jacob and his uncle Laban. Yeah, good point. So, OK, let's move into Genesis, uh, Genesis 31. So Jacob heads off for Canaan. Right. Yeah, he leaves. And there's one little interesting side note here that's going to become an important part of the story as Jacob literally sneaks off. And it's hard to sneak off now, by the way. You have four <laughs> wives, mm-hmm. you have 12 sons, you have daughters, you have servants, you have tons of animals. But Laban was away, shearing sheep away from home. And so Jacob knew there was a, a gap of time here. He made a run for it to go back to the promised land because he knew that Laban wasn't going to let him go. He thought it might be a, a violent departure or whatever. So he just tried to make a run for it. And before they go, Jacob's wife, Rachel, decides to take what's called the household idols when they leave. And you think, what are the household idols? Well, well the uncle Laban was was a pagan. He didn't worship the same God as the, the true God of Jacob. And I'm not really sure why she took them. Maybe it was just because it was her background. These were something that a home had that was prominently displayed. It was a sign of authority in the home for the father to have these. I don't know why Rachel stole them, but she took them with her when they, they fled uh, the, the area where Laban lived. And that even enraged Laban even more. So he chases after them and he gets very upset at Jacob for you know leaving. After all, Jacob is married to his daughters and all his grandchildren are there. He's leaving without even saying goodbye. But also the fact of these household idols that they are stolen. He goes through everyone's tent, and Jacob said, hey, whoever you find them with, that person should die. Well, fortunately for Rachel, she had them hidden in her tent. He did, her, her father did not find them. But just goes to show you, there was also division spiritually going on here. Laban was a pagan. Jacob was a follower of God. So was Rachel, by the way, which makes it hard to understand why she wanted them. But there was still some syncretism going on at the time, maybe in her own heart of becoming a follower of God, but also holding on to some of the syncretistic false religion of her family. Yeah, David, you know, we, we talk about this being relevant for today. It sounds like this could have happened last week. A- absolutely. And this was, I think, a permanent separation, by the way. Sometimes families break apart like this, and this is the last mention of any of Abraham's family from Haran for the rest of Scripture. In other words, this was a permanent departure with Jacob going back to the promised land, the land that he had been promised by God. This was the last time any of that family would go up to meet the ancestral homeland where they came from. Wow. That's, it's, a, it's a powerful story. You're telling it so beautifully, and I know you're inspiring um, me as long as, uh, as well as a lot of other listeners to go back and reread Genesis. So thank you for that, David. You're welcome. And we come back to the same point, Bill, is that in the midst of these fallen and sinful circumstances, resentment and competition and multiple wives, God's sovereignty, his purposes are still being moved forward by him. Yeah. And that's the way it is for our own life as well. Yeah. David, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Blessings to your family. And the same to you, Bill. Thanks so much. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. After a short break, we'll be right back. Let's get it started. 
All right. During this time of the pandemic, which has been such a crisis around the world, I think it's super important that we always look to the, our nation's heroes because we're always interested in examples of courage, selflessness, and today being Veterans Day, I really would love to have you hear a story about a Special Forces hero who received the Medal of Honor. His name is Gary Burkert. And there is an amazing book called Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of of his life. And the author is with us today, Marcus Brotherson. Marcus, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Well, correct me just on the pronunciation of his name, because I I probably butchered it, and I didn't mean to. <laughs> it's an unusual one, Bill. It's uh, like imagine you're, you're like you ever watch uh, Star Trek, Captain yeah. Kirk. Yeah. Imagine you're saying goodbye to Captain Kirk. So it's by Kirk. By Kirk. <laughs> Gary by Kirk. Yeah. Okay, that makes it really easy. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. That'll help because uh, it is an unusual spelling. B E I. K-I-R-C-H. So I want to get some urchin there. But oh, gonna... I butchered it for a good, uh, yeah, three months, I think. <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. Okay, uh, Marcus, nice work on this book. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It was a uh, real, real honor to work on this with Gary. Yeah. Uh, what a guy. What an amazing story. So tell our listeners a little bit of his path. Well, Gary, um, so Gary became a Green Beret during the Vietnam War. And um, he, he, he specifically, he entered the medical field. He became a Green Beret Army medic. And so he was never a, sort of a big rough-and-tumble soldier, uh, definitely didn't enter the military to, to hurt people ever. He, he did the complete opposite of that. He wanted to enter the military to heal people. Very compassionate soul, a very big-hearted gentleman. And he was sent to this uh, tiny village in Vietnam's Central Highlands region. It's called Dak Sang. And for several months, he lived there. And it was just an amazing, idyllic setting. Uh, He was the chief medic in the village. There's 12 Green Berets, about 400 uh, indigenous fighters from the Montagnard tribe, and then about 2,300 women and children, uh, mostly the the wives and, and the children of the fighters who lived there. So uh, for the first little bit of time when he's there, everything is just going great. I mean, he's uh, he's uh, delivering babies. He's the, the the camp veterinarian as well as doing all the all the doctor duties. He's he's uh, he's the dentist. You know, he's just sort of taking care of everybody, and, and they're having a great time. They welcome him into their tribe. They're very very thankful that he's there. Um, they're, uh, the Green Berets are taking the kids, uh, you know, swimming down at the river when the days are hot. They're showing John Wayne movies on a big projector and a screen at night. It, it's it's a great time, and and the Monyard people, and this is really key to understand, uh, they really welcomed the presence of the Green Berets. Uh, you know, the Vietnam War um, definitely a, a chaotic time in our nation's history, um, but the war for Gary was very black and white. The enemy had actually vowed to uh, to wipe the Montagnards off the map. The enemy considered the Montagnards an, an inferior race. So it wasn't simply a matter of them, of the Montagnards getting sort of uh, absorbed into this autocratic communist system. It was the enemy is, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you all. So the Montagnards were fighters. They were they were fighters from, uh, each each man was a fighter from a young age, from a their teenage years, <clears throat> and they welcomed their presence. 
So Gary was there, and and everything was going great, and then everything changed uh, April 1st, 1970. And during the night, uh, 10,000 enemy soldiers encircled this little village. And it was a strategic village because it was close to the uh, what's called the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was the main north to south supply route for the communists. So um, dawn's first light, uh, everybody in the village wakes up to this enormous, horrific uh, barrage of incoming shells, complete surprise. And it's just a shellacking. I mean, the, there's so many of the enemy, and the and the the fire is just so intense. And it's going everywhere inside this village. And that's the, the really difficult part because it's women and children. And it just these shells are coming in indiscriminately. So Gary is the chief medic. It's his job to take care of everybody in the camp. Uh, tragically, he's hit three times almost right away. He's hit in his stomach, uh, his back, and in his hip. And so he is paralyzed from the waist down. I mean, he's and he's bleeding profusely, and he's he's done for. His fight is over. But this is what really makes Gary's story so amazing. Uh, he's lying there in, in the dirt and the dust, and he calls two helpers over to him, and, and he says, "Carry me, carry me, around the battlefield." And so these two helpers drag uh, this medic from one wounded person to another person, another wounded person. And Gary continues to administer aid and to mm. save lives in the middle of this battle. I'm, I'm a little speechless right now. <laughs> well, I, it, Billy, it's, it, it's an amazing story. When I first heard of it, um, it was kind of through a friend of a friend of a friend, and we were talking on the on the phone, and and he told me this story. I'm like, you've got to be kidding! And uh, and as soon as I got off the phone call, um, I looked up Gary, and <clears throat> he, fortunately, he keeps a fairly robust presence on Facebook. And I just reached out to him cold. I introduced myself. I said, hey, have you ever, uh, you know, thought about telling your story in a book? And the amazing thing was, is that Gary and his wife, Lolly, they had been thinking and praying about writing a book for several years. They were just waiting for the right opportunity. So it was really a fortuitous meeting. So I'm trying to go back to that night um, or that that morning where 10,000 soldiers are descending on this little village. And the response was what? I mean, what kind of firepower or soldiers were available in the village to try to defend that little village? Yeah, so it's it's the 12 Green Berets and then the 400 uh, <laughs> Monyard Fighters. Yeah, so wow. the odds are something like 23 to 1 or yeah. 24 to 1. I don't like those it's odds just, at all. Oh, crazy, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out uh, how he remained alive if there's that much firepower coming. I mean, there's, there's this, they would have complete control of the village and wipe out whoever they wanted to wipe out at this point, right? Yeah, the village was uh, pretty heavily fortified. Um, I've seen some pictures of it, and it was surrounded by um, two or three levels of, of sort of barricades and, and um, uh, what's the word, the concertina wire and, and whatnot. So the, the enemy couldn't um, just sort of run right in. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was fortunate. So there, there, there was some delay in time where it was only incoming rockets and whatnot. And the Green Berets were, were able to call, um, uh, you know, support. And, and so uh, fighter, fighter planes came over and whatnot and, and were able to help the battle that way. So, Marcus, uh, so 
Gary's taking these hits and he's paralyzed from the waist down and he's requesting for people to basically drag him around to assist other soldiers who are living and down. Yes, correct. And and not and, only soldiers, and but villagers. women and children. And yeah, w- yeah. villagers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Absolutely remarkable. Um, so when you had a chance to start uh, talking to Gary personally, uh, what kind of insights was he giving you to what was going on in his head and his heart? And what, what, what was he thinking? Well, the amazing thing is really is that his war had become all about the people in this village. Uh, he had really come to uh, care for them, to love them, and, and it was a reciprocal feeling. They loved him and accepted him and welcomed his presence there and, and vice versa. Gary had grown up um, uh, from a split home. His father left when he was young, and, and uh, so when Gary went to this village, he said, "Boy, it was it was just like they, uh, just like a homecoming. I mean, they they really welcomed me and made them made me feel just so welcome." So when when he is fighting um, and 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 helping to to defend the village and helping to care for everybody who's wounded, he's he's uh, he, he describes how his war was not about Nixon. His war was not about uh, Kissinger. His war was about the villagers in, in Daxang, and that's what it all boiled down to. How can I help the people in my care? Mm-hmm. So it was a, a very natural response for him, despite his woundedness in the moment, to go racing to care for the women and children and others who needed medical assistance that day. Correct, yeah. 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 So uh, what was his recovery uh, what is his state today? I know that he's um, still with us, and um, what did it take for him to recover? Is he permanently paralyzed? Uh, fortunately, he, he gained uh, use of his legs again. Um, when Gary was initially wounded, he was in bad shape. We're talking shrapnel on his spine, uh, oh, small boy. arms fire through his back and right hip, shrapnel on his abdomen. His internal organs were outside his body. He's paralyzed from the waist down. So he's he gets uh, medevaced. Um, uh, in a pretty intense firefight, fortunately lives. And in the hospital, Gary is, he's wavering in and out of consciousness. And Gary describes it like when he's going unconscious, it's really black. I mean, he's sure he's going to die. And uh, the unconsciousness is, is sort of like unlike anything he's ever experienced before. I mean, he is this self-sufficient Green Beret. He is used to uh, taking the ball and running with it and, and scoring the touchdown. But now he is stripped of all his resources. He's rid of all self-sufficiency in this hospital bed. And one day he, he comes to, and you can kind of picture the hospital. I mean, there's moans and coughs and wounded soldiers in the ward and, and sort of nurses uh, you know, doing the rounds. And Gary does not want to die. He desperately wants to stay alive. And then uh, a sudden voice comes from his his right side, and the voice says, I'm glad to see you're awake, son. And, and, and the figure kind of advances and pulls a chair to the bedside, and the figure says, I've been coming by your bed for a few days now, and I've been praying for you. And it's this unknown chaplain who sits down, and Gary speaks for the first time in days. He says, well, I'm glad to be awake, sir. Uh, am I going to die? Uh, uh, and the chaplain says, would you like to pray? So Gary has grown up without sort of any spiritual background, and he says, Pray? I don't know how to pray, sir. I don't even know who to pray to. Wow. And the chaplain smiles and he says, that's okay, son. God knows how to listen. So Gary grips this chaplain's hand really hard and he whispers, God, I don't know if you are real or if you're there, but I'm scared. And if you are real, I need you. 
Gary is 23 years old. That's the first time he's ever prayed. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What a moment, huh? Mm. And then this chaplain, did, did you learn more about him and his story? That's it. He comes and goes. Okay. Uh, but fortunately, that begins Gary's spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And he's had relatives that have been praying for him since he was a young boy. And Gary eventually does uh, find the Lord and, and uh, you know, embrace Jesus Christ and becomes a full believer. He's a chaplain of the Medal of Honor Society today and just a honorable and upright man. Mm-hmm. And Gary's journey that brought him to a point of being uh, holding that chaplain's hand and crying out to God, I'm sure when he looks back on his life, he said, that was a pretty significant moment in my, in my life. <laughs> It's the watershed moment. I mean, everything the, yeah. changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, no one, of course, would want that pain, that suffering, and that near-death experience. But at that point, Gary said, Lord, if you're there, I need you. Absolutely. I mean, doesn't that just make our hearts leap a little bit? Well, and, and Jesus says, you know, whosoever will may come. And uh, the wonderful thing is we don't have to clean our lives up uh, before we come to Jesus. Uh, I think so many people think that. It, if only I can sort of shine my life up, then God will accept me. And the message of the gospel is the other way around. I mean, <laughs> Jesus comes down and says, hey, uh, I will accept you as you are. Follow me. And, uh, and, and let's begin there. Yeah. Let me take a little break, uh, Marcus, because when I come back, I want to find out what specific medal was awarded, who awarded it to him. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, this ministry, this chaplain of Medal Honor Society. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. Uh, Marcus Brotherton is my guest. He's written a book called A Blaze of Light, and it's an inspiring true story of Green Beret medic Gary Bykirk. Medal of Honor recipient. We'll be right back. Marcus Brotherton is my guest. He's a New York Times bestselling author and co-author of more than 25 books. And the one we're chatting about today is called Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of Green Beret medic Gary By Kirk, and he was a Medal of Honor recipient. Uh, Marcus, what uh, medal, was it the Medal of Valor that he received? Uh, it's actually the Medal of Honor, Bill. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course, I knew that. I thought, I, I, knew he, I knew he had the Medal of Honor. Was there also a Medal of Valor, too? Or is it the same one? Or is, it, uh, or is the word Valor on the Medal of Honor? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. He's got a whole raft of medals, uh, including <laughs> Silver Stars. So yeah, uh, the Medal of Honor, and, and this was this was an education to me as well, Bill. And um, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's it's the highest, the most prestigious military decoration that that the United States gives uh, for acts of valor. And uh, it's it's been around since the Civil War. Uh, there's been about 2,300 people who received it, which is not very many when you consider all the military people. I think there is uh, 68 or 69 living recipients at the moment, not That's very impressive. many. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's often awarded uh, posthumously just because it's so difficult to receive. It often takes an act that you know requires your death wow. uh, to, to get the medal. So yeah, and our. Um uh, Gary is still alive, but um, battling some health issues, huh? 
He is, yeah. Uh, and very unfortunately, Gary, he's battled cancer, and he's he's beat the cancer, and then he and his wife Lolly have just learned that it's it's returned again. So they are uh, they're in a uh, another fight now for mm-hmm. sure. So, Marcus, when you uh, connect to Gary and write the story and uh, get involved in this, how does it affect you as a writer and as a person? Well, it's always about the individual and. Um, people who have done just amazing things. It's just great to see. Gary and I, we worked on his book for probably a year and a half to two years total and have just become friends during the process. I've had him over at my house. Uh, this was before the lockdown. And, uh, you know, we've had meals together. He's met my family. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just so honored to call him a friend. Yeah, so when you write this book and you're getting all these details what were some that came to you from gary that made you go oh come on you got to be kidding i mean obviously you've shared some of the biggest already but there's got to be other little things that popped up that made you think who is this guy (laughs) yeah it's so amazing bill and there's really another half of the story that's almost as big as the first piece and it's really what intrigued me um just enormously about his story. So after the war, uh, Gary experiences a lot of difficulty. He's a Christian by then, but he's really growing in his faith journey, comes home to America. Physically, he heals, regains the feeling in his legs, uh, eventually learns how to walk again. But he's still wounded in his heart, his soul, his mind. He returns to university initially, uh, hoping to become a doctor. But um, like so many of his generation of military personnel, he is harassed for being a veteran. Hmm. And, and yeah. we're talking, this is a literal harassment. He, he's, he's walking down the hallway, and people have found out he's a veteran, and, and they'll bump him in the hallway. Or he's sitting in the library, and people will push his books off uh, so they fall on the floor. Uh, he is literally called names. He is literally spit upon. There's sort of one horrific scene in the book where he's um, in his van, sitting in his van in the parking lot, in the university parking lot, and uh, fellow classmates find out he's there. And so they surround his van, and, and, and they're yelling at him and, and shouting at him and, and calling him names and, and pushing the van. And, I mean, Gary's a green beret. He could take care of himself. I'm sure yeah. he, you know, if he got out, he could get in a couple punches, but he doesn't. He restrains himself and, and, and leaves the scene. So the, the pressure gets um, just so, uh, so deep and difficult that Gary decides to, quote-unquote, drop out. He's still technically in university during this time. Uh, trying to keep up with classes, but he's one day he he's like about the only place I feel good in life anymore is out in the wilderness. So he hikes far out into the in uh, into the northern Appalachian Mountains, and he finds this cave, and he decides to live in this cave, and he ends up living in this literal cave for uh, a year and a half. We're talking he's bathing in a stream, he's eating uh, around a fire, uh, and he kind of spends his time reading and hiking and playing. Good, playing guitar and journaling, and he's just really just trying to make sense of life. And when he's living in this cave, he uh, he keeps a, a, a post office box uh, at a nearby, uh, in a small town at a nearby post office. He goes down to get his mail, and there's this message to be at a certain payphone uh, the next evening by 6 p.m. So the next day he goes, he takes the call, and it's the Pentagon calling, saying he's been he, he's been awarded the Medal of Honor. So he literally goes uh, from living in the cave. He goes to the White House, meets the president, gets the medal, and then he's like, you know, I can't quite handle this. And he goes back to living in his cave. 
That's unbelievable. First of all, the you know, go to this payphone at a certain time and it will ring and answer it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's the, for and, email, right? And yeah. it's the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in in the title of the book, Blaze of Light, uh, can you talk about that and what does that mean and how does that fit into the story? Uh, blaze of light is is a little bit open to interpretation. You know, is it the blaze of light that comes from Jesus in our lives? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're kind of leaving that up up to the reader's interpretation. It's actually a line from a song, um, but really, it's it's Gary does come out of the cave uh, and, and he meets this uh, beautiful young girl, Lolly, who eventually becomes his wife, and 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 they progress on this journey together. And Lolly, really, in many ways, is the blaze of light in Gary's life because uh-huh. she walks through the next uh, you know several decades with him as as he's still processing the the PTSD and and some of the things that have happened to him. Um, yeah. So when you uh, mentioned PTSD, of course, that's a huge topic for um, just about anyone who has served in the military. And um, how to this day has uh, Gary sort of managed that pain? Mm. Uh, he's done a lot of work. He eventually earned his master's degree, became a counselor. And his uh, method, uh, well, he, he started out by just not talking, and then it, that just didn't work. And so he did a lot of sort of soul work and inner work and then started talking and started reaching out and started uh, helping people. And, and that really was enormously help, helpful in his life. Mm-hmm. And Marcus, talk about some of the photographs that are in the book Blaze of Light, uh, the the inspiring true story of Gary Bykirk, because I'm looking at one of the uh, 2,300 women and children that sort of have below ground living quarters. And I look at this photo and I go, really? People live there and 10,000 soldiers attack this little village? It's just unbelievable. It's so hard to comprehend. Yeah, why was the village so strategic? Uh, that's that's a great question, and uh, being so close to the to the Ho Chi Minh Trail was part of it. Uh, a ruthless enemy was part of it, and we're just uh, you know sort of storming down from the north and and uh, and you know taking care of everyone in our path. So it's a it, it's a horrific story. Yeah. Yeah, and then some of the other photos um, you see his uh, obviously the the people that live in the village. The fighters, I mean, they kind of look like a, a you know, a, a group of men that they don't really look like fighters. <laughs> you, you just kind of wonder, and the looks in uh, the looks on the uh, faces of these beautiful children, um, it's just it's just heart wrenching. Yeah, yeah, very very poignant uh, story in many ways. Uh, there's an amazing scene uh, near the end of the book, Bill. Um, we describe how Gary returned to Vietnam to visit in 1982 with the Vietnam Veterans of America. Gary was actually the first Medal of Honor recipient to return uh, to the country after it after it fell to, to the communists. So for 10 days, Gary and the vets, they, they tour the country. They meet with uh, communist government officials, political committees, veterans, Viet, uh, Vietnamese civilians. And then one day at a at a roadside uh, beach, one hot afternoon, Gary uh, strikes up a conversation with a former enemy officer he'd fought with the NVA, and sort of respectfully, these these two former enemies they talk for some time about the war and and, and the duties that they'd both discharged and the and the wounds that they both had suffered, and and the man just seems so genuine and so self collected and restful, and Gary asks him to explain. Um, you know, what's happened in his life? And uh, the officer says, 
Vietnam has been at war for many years with many different countries. War is terrible. Nobody really wins. Everybody loses. Everybody suffers. But I have learned that if I am to heal, if I am to rebuild my life, I cannot hate. And this is the secret of my healing to go forward. I must forgive. Gary is amazed by the man. Wow. They shake hands together once they were former enemies. Wow. Beautiful message. So mm. powerful and just so important that, we, that we're hearing this today. Thank you so much, Marcus. And I assume that uh, Gary got his Medal of Honor from President Nixon, right? Nixon, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to tell the story on uh, this day. Uh, my guest has been Marcus Brotherton, and his book is called Blaze of Light, the inspiring true story of Green Beret medic Gary Bykirk, a Medal of Honor recipient. Marcus, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Bill. Yep, you bet. We'll take a little break when we come back. Hour two is all ahead, and you know what that is. It's Wednesday, and the prayer series is on. Dr. Peter Kaftner will be joining me in the studio, and we are going to have uh, Daryl B. Harrison and Virgil Walker as our guests. They're tag-teaming. It's going to be fun. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.